And welcome back to the Extra Point Podcast. Today's Tuesday, November the 9th. Really glad you tuned in. My name is Todd. I'm one of the pastors here at First Family. And on the Extra Point Podcast, we take some time to look back at the previous week's text or theme and bring some additional insight or observation. And usually the Extra Point Podcast is about 8, 10, 11 minutes. But today an extra special treat, and I hope you'll stay tuned for the entire Extra Point Podcast. What we're going to do is actually, um, we're going to broadcast Sarah Hensel's story from Sunday afternoon. Now, normally at first person, which is what we do on the fifth Sundays uh, when they occur, in that afternoon we always have a special word from one of our partners, uh, information that's kind of in the room only. Um, This past Sunday, we held a first-person event, 3 o'clock there uh, at First Family. We heard Sarah's story about both triumph and tragedy in their time as a missionary on the field in Jamaica. And though we said at that moment it was an in-person-only event, um, it was so powerful and so compelling that I I just think it would be very helpful for you to to have access to that if you weren't able to be there and hear it. There is nothing in here that's going to violate any security measures for any of our partners. Uh, and it's just a, a stirring testimony to God's grace and God's power. And so we're going to broadcast this. It is about 45 minutes. You hear from her as well as two of her children. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, if you have to listen to it in segments, please do. But you will thoroughly enjoy this episode of the Extra Point Podcast as we hear from Sarah Hensel and as she recounts for us God's amazing sufficiency and provision in both the good and the bad of her time there in Jamaica as a missionary with her family and all that happened in both the ups and the downs. So stay tuned and enjoy this uh, uh, word from Sarah Hensel, what we're calling Sarah's Story. We were having a really good time. We were getting ready for Callie's graduation party, which was in a couple weeks. And um, we, our house had been a rental for the previous eight years. And so Randy had worked really hard um, on the deferred maintenance and getting the house ready, everything ready for this graduation party that was coming up. And then he left for a three-week trip to Jamaica and I was going to surprise him by installing a backsplash while he was gone. And so Callie and I were working on this backsplash, and we were having a good time. We were talking and laughing and working together and really having a good time. She was a busy senior, so it was a treat to have her home for an evening. And uh, then she got a phone call, an emergency. One of her friends at the high school um, was at an activity, and her phone was dying Could Callie run a charger up to the high school for her? And so Callie said, sure, yes, of course, high school, yes, uh, emergency, I'm on it. And so as Callie was leaving, she passed by Pastor Todd, who had stopped by. And that was, you know, a little weird, but not that weird. Like Pastor Todd just said, we had a lot of connections Uh, The church had met in our living room at the beginning for several months, and Randy was the first small group pastor. We were the first missionaries, and probably more importantly, our kids had grown up together, and they had alternated between being the best of friends and the worst of friends. (laughs) And so we had a lot of connections. There were any number of things he could have stopped by to talk about. 
So I was completely unprepared for what he had stopped by to talk about. I was unprepared, but he was dreading it. So he asked me to sit down, and then he told me that he had received a call from our mission agency director, John, and that Randy's body had been found out in the bush. He'd been shot. Um, Harold was, and that's all we knew. His motorcycle had been found with Randy's, and that's all we knew. And I just looked at him, and it didn't compute. What are you saying? What? And then I said, are you telling me that Randy is dead? And he said, yes. I've double-checked. There's no question. It's not anybody else. It's definitely Randy. And so the next, well, the next, I was going to say the next few minutes are our blur, but really much longer than that. Anyway, um, I was able to tell Anna and TJ the news. We called the older C was at a wedding in Amy and Nebraska and Tyler. And then Cassie was at a wedding in Clear Lake, so we got them called. And by the time Callie came back from the high school with two friends for me to meet, um, she opened the door and found a different atmosphere than she was expecting. She shooed the two friends away and came inside to a world forever changed. Twenty-some years ago, we were just your typical lost American family. We were living for the American dream. Randy was working 80 hours a week, chasing success, and I was working and effectively single-parenting my kids. Our marriage was fragile. Then our neighbors invited our two oldest to church with them at this crazy church where they went all the time. And um, then our kids asked if we would switch churches. This was Grace Church in Des Moines. And so, 20-some years ago, we agreed to take them to that church. But before we went inside the first time, Randy laid down the law. He said, we will bring you here on Sunday mornings, but we are not coming back on Sunday nights. And we're too busy to come on Wednesdays. We are Sunday morning only churchgoers. Yep, that's what he said. <laughs> but God. Some of the best verses and the best stories start with but God. And so we went inside that crazy church, and we met all those crazy people, and we met the God that made them crazy. And we couldn't get enough of him. And so pretty soon we were there on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings and Wednesdays and eventually even Tuesdays once we started taking Bible training classes. So a few years after that, on one January morning, Pastor Nelms stood up and he said, everybody needs to take a short-term mission trip this year. And we were new enough Christians that we thought you had to do everything your pastor said. <laughs> and so we signed up for some short-term mission trips, and those trips rocked our world as we met people with no hope, no hope for a better life here and no hope for a better eternity and so we surrendered our lives to whatever God would have for us to do in missions. So by the time we were done with our training, our two oldest were in college, 
And so we packed up, in 2007, we packed up the younger three, who were six, eight, and ten, and we went um, to the mountains of Jamaica, and we served at a camp for a short time. And then in 2010, we uh, switched mission agencies and um, joined Harold and Terry Nichols on the, um, near Ocho Rios, on the north coast of Jamaica. And so these were our ministry partners, Harold and Terry, and that's Randy and I on our Bible Club All-Stars there. Um, so we joined a mission agency that ran quarterly medical clinics. And um, so just like a quarterly medical clinics, we imported doctors and nurses and pharmacists from the U.S. every quarter, but we went to the same places every Quarter. And so we were the primary physicians for a vast number of people in this area. And, um, you know, primitive, primitive medical clinics, but um, really a necessary um, service. This is Anna doing the, doing the books at the medical clinic. The other thing we did was construction projects, also on that quarterly schedule. And so we would build a house for a family every quarter. And I think you can see TJ there in the front and Callie. And Harold ran the, the construction and we built a little house for somebody every quarter. And we also had a Bible club. And we had about 100 kids and four adults. <laughs> so, but, about 30 seconds away from complete chaos, but the only actual fire we ever had was <laughs> as a result of Terry and my mad scientist lesson. So, um, as you can see, there was a lot of them. And we, f we had a, a big hammer, though a big stick, to keep discipline, in that we fed them dinner at the end. We, they got a hot dog and some Kool-Aid every week, and if they were unruly, we could just send them out, and they'd miss their dinner. And so we really didn't have very many discipline problems. We also did school devotions, and we all share the gospel there. And we also started a... Uh, Sunday school out in the field to try to reach people right in their neighborhood. And so that's what these pictures are. And we got creative. We didn't have any equipment or anything, so coloring was just done on each other's backs. The main thing Randy and I did was we started a Bible training center. And this is a three-and-a-half-year night school for pastors and lay leaders. And the pastors in Jamaica are just desperate for training. One of the first people we met in Jamaica was Pastor McGregor. He was, um, it was just a God coincidence, but he was an overseer of 13 churches and struggling to get seminary training from online U.S. schools. He was struggling financially to pay for it, and he was struggling just logistically because for him to take these online classes, internet in very few places, and so it was really very hard for him to take these online classes. So he was our 
first and most enthusiastic supporter of our school. And he helped us design the payment structure. And so he said, you can't offer it for free. It, they have to sacrifice. You have to, it has to be worth something to get this training. And so we charged $3 a week. And that was a struggle for most of our students. And so Randy would try to come up with um, ways to help. He was always on the lookout for things we could do, ways to help. And when we found out that some of our students were going without food so they could pay their tuition help, and redoubled his efforts to find ways to help. And so uh, we found out one of our students, Michael, was, knew how to paint. He used to work at a resort. And he, so he could paint, and so we would find things to paint. We had the best-looking rented house in Jamaica because everything was always freshly painted. And we'd come up with, if we heard a church was trying to do a building project, our class would go, and we would help, and Randy would pay them half in tuition credit and half in cash because they'd had expenses. Everybody had to take a taxi to get there. Everybody had to pay for their own lunch. And so he always tried to do half cash and half tuition credit and um, just various ways that we could help. And so, at one point, he built this cart for Scotty, and uh, Scotty could, it's got a cooler on the bottom, and he had somebody bring down an ice shaver. And so, you can imagine, after that ice shaver, summer day, that Scotty's business boomed after that ice shaver came along. We, bought, we went to Kingston and bought cloth in bulk for our seamstresses and so they could make a living doing school uniforms. We commissioned Bible covers. Anyway, we could help with dignity. We had really the most dedicated students. Our class ran uh, by American time, which means it started on time, which is rare in Jamaica and was, you know, took some getting used to for them. We had one student who was consistently late, Mr. Alston there. And so in his very rural weeks, Randy went to visit him at his, in his very rural home. And Randy was really thankful that he listened before talking, because immediately Alston apologized for being late every week. He said, Mr. Randy, I shut down my shop at 3 p.m., and I get cleaned up, and I go, and I walk to the nearest taxi, and I get inside the taxi, and I start praying that somebody else comes, because this taxi driver would not leave without two people in, in the taxi. And Alston said, I've offered to pay for the other seat, but he still won't leave. He said, I'm not leaving with an empty seat. Logic isn't real strong. Um, and so... Anyway, he, there were several transfers and taxis, and then finally a bus that arrived at about 6 p.m. near our class, and then also would sprint to where our class is, catch his breath at the bottom of the stairs, and come of the night, he would do... And so, um, and then at the end of the night, he would do the same in reverse. So he spent three hours getting to class and three hours getting home. So from 3 p.m. to midnight, he allocated for our class. And so um, really dedicated students. We had another student, Ricardo, who only missed one class in the whole three-and-a-half-year program. 
And that was because it rained that day, and the river had covered the road, and he couldn't get through. And so for the remaining two and a half years, whenever it would start to rain, Ricardo would leave for class. Whether that was at 9 a.m., he would just come to So all could be sure he wouldn't miss class. So all along, uh, we were training leaders uh, to take over the school. So these are the, uh, the board, and Pastor McGregor is the uh, chairman of the board, and um, Randy did a really great job of just training them all along. So we had our first graduation in October of 2015. We had 23 graduates, and... Um, there's Pastor McGregor as one of our first graduates. Um, so our, our ministry was very successful and very well received, but life in Jamaica itself was very hard. Um, every public outing included being swarmed by beggars, and so you really had to mentally prepare to go in. Is, and then possibly even worse, is having friends that you knew um, who are living in poverty and having problems that you know you could solve, but you can't solve everybody's problems. And how do you balance helping with dignity and not helping? And there was just so many decisions all the time and so much pain going around, and so many awesome Christians that um, just humbled you because they kept going with their amazing Christian faith through trials you couldn't even believe. A lot of, for our kids, there was a lot of boredom. Um, there wasn't anything to do, there wasn't anywhere to go, and it really wasn't safe for them to be out on their own. And so they spent all their time at home, except for about four hours a week when we went to ministry events. So we were really cool parents, but that's kind of a lot. So the younger two, which you will hear from shortly, um, didn't do too bad. They were fairly content. I wouldn't suggest trying to get into a strategy game with them because <laughs> they have 10,000 hours of practice at strategy games, so that's not your best bet. Um, but our, the, the middle's daughter, Callie, very outgoing, very bubbly. She just wilted. And so we just wilted. And so um, in 2013, we made the very difficult decision to send her back to the U.S., and she moved in with one of her older sisters. Uh, Cassie and Max were newlyweds. I think Callie moved in with them on their one-year anniversary. Happy anniversary. <laughs> Have a teenager. As you might have guessed, it really didn't go that well. The compliant, thankful teenager that they thought they were getting 
morphed into the teenager that had a lot of living to catch up on and couldn't really be bothered with the routine. They were done. And they said, for a couple years, by the summer of 2015, they were done. And they said, come get her or we're going to kill her. <laughs> so Callie came to spend the summer of 2015 in Jamaica. And what a sweet summer it was. It was so awesome. Um, and the first family youth group came to visit us, and we just had the most fabulous week with them, and it was a really good summer. Um, so our home assignment, or furlough, started in January 2016, uh, but the kids and I came back in September of 2015, so we had the summer, and then the kids and I all came back so that they could go to the full school year and so that Callie would have a place to live and not be killed by her older sister. And, um, and so we came back. And Randy came uh, our home assignments for Christmas and, you know, started our home assignment. But he had um, agreed to help with the quarterly medical clinic still, even during our year home. And so he went back to Jamaica in, for the February clinic, and then he went back in late April for the May clinic. And so on Saturday, April 30th, 2016, Randy and Harold set out on their motorcycles, visited the construction project that they'd be working on the next week, headed over the mountain to visit a student who needed help when they were ambushed and murdered. There was no motive, just desperate young men, hopeless young men with nothing to live for and everything to prove. Went back to the beginning, and now we're started in the middle. We went back to the beginning, and now we're back in the middle. I don't know how it ends, but I do know that April 30th, 2016 isn't the end of the story. But before I give you my perspective on what's happened since, I've asked Anna and TJ, to give their perspective on life in the mission field and what's happened since. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so yeah, starting from April 30th. Um, three weeks back in the U.S. Um, hadn't spent a lot of time here before that. Um, we had come back and forth to the U.S. We knew our time here. Um, but we really didn't know how long we were going to be here for on our furlough. And so I think the plan was a year, maybe. Um, so we were kind of settling in for a somewhat short amount of time here for a lot. And that day is kind of when it cemented in that we would be here for a lot longer. And so what I found myself was being a 14-year-old kid who didn't know who he was, hadn't spent a lot of time here, and I found myself at a loss. I found myself at a loss for a lot of things. Um, a loss of who I was, um, a loss of a physical father, and what ended up was a loss of a spiritual father as well. Um, this wasn't the first time that terrible things had happened to us on the mission field. My dad was in a car crash, we, more than one maybe, <laughs> I don't know. It, the amount of things that we would see that God would follow through was, God, you messed up. And so what I found was, God, you messed up. You had this opportunity to follow through on this promise, this mutual trust that we had that 
we were doing your work and you would keep us safe. And what I thought at that time was God didn't care. And so there's so many things that you learn and that you know about God, but that I didn't feel. Anna and I were talking about, um, what was it? In the Psalms, co- of Psalms of Lament. There's things that you know about God that you know are true, but you don't feel them. And that was exactly where I was. And I was there for a very long time because I knew that God could protect me and I knew that God would provide, but I didn't feel like God was providing for me and God was protecting me. And so what I found was what I knew about God and what I cared about him, which was not a whole lot. I didn't care for God at that time. I found myself being a 14-year-old kid who my only encouragement was told to man up Protect your family, you're the man of the house now. And I didn't know how to do that. And so I rejected my faith. And I didn't do this outwardly, I did this privately. I was still attending youth group and I was still here every Wednesday and Sunday night helping out. But I wasn't, I wasn't living this life. I was living, I was living the Christian life. That's not where I was. Because I even though I still knew these things to be true, it wasn't what I wanted. I didn't want anything to do with God. And so I rejected him for a very long time. Um, it wasn't until one week, um, I heard my mom say something. It was talking to his people and he said, I will do all, um, and it's where God is talking to his people and he said, I will do all these things for the good of my plan and for the good of my people. And if you read that verse in a selfish way, you can say, God will do all things for the good of me. But when you read that verse in a way that you look through the eyes of God, God's people is not just me, but God's people is all of his plan. How do you learn to trust God's plan when all that you see is just the small little bit that you have? Because the bit that I saw was a God who didn't come through on his promise. But when you look at it from God's perspective, what I saw was a God who had so many more things going on. There were things that I, I did not have in, in my perspective that I could see. I, most likely, if we hadn't come back from, um, from Jamaica at that time, I would have been on that trip where my dad and Harold died. And so God had a perspective. He to be, your dad's time is done. He has done what I have planned him to be, but there's still so much more that you can do. And so... God had this plan. We were going to move back. We would be out of the situation. And God still had a plan for my life. And that was something that this realization that God did not fail. And God still had me in his fold. That I was still under his protection. And that was, that was the one thing that really clicked for me. And that's when I started to change. Um, I really got the ambition to go back on a missions trip. And so I ended up going on the Berlin missions trip. And that changed my perspective so much because I had changed freeness of what am I doing now? Like I just felt this emptiness of what am I doing now? Like I had spent so much time on the mission field and even though Anna and I really weren't doing a whole lot, you knew that your life had purpose. You knew that your family had purpose, that, that God was doing so much through your life. And here I was just a kid in high school, and I felt, I'm doing nothing right now. Like, what is, what is my purpose for you, God? And I talked to the missionaries that were there, and he said, sometimes God 
uses the amount of time here. And he is just waiting for you to get to where you need to be for him to use you. So he said, even though you feel like you're doing nothing right now, even though you feel like your time in high school is, is worthless, what God is doing is God is preparing you for what's ahead. And so whether that looks like going back into missions and, or whether that looks like just being a faithful servant here in the U.S., I knew that, I knew that God, that we still had more in my future and that even though through this tragic loss that we had experienced, there was so much more that God would do with my life because God had made that very clear that there was still more in my plan and that he knew what was happening. So Anna has a slightly different story. Thanks. Um, yeah, so my, I feel like my reaction to my father's death was set up a long time before I actually heard the news. Um, yeah, like my mom said, I was pretty content as a kid. I found out I was going to be homeschooled, and I was like, let's go. I'll go wherever you want. I can go at my own pace. Let's do it. Um, I had a color-coded schedule. I was pretty okay with whatever, um, but in 2000, so yeah, so I was pretty okay with whatever, um, but in 2009, um, during one of those like big transition phases, kind of swapping between our first time in Jamaica to our second, um, I just started to become really afraid of a lot of things. Um, I hated dark corners. I hated opening doors. I was just always in a constant like fight or flight mode. Probably also didn't help that we were staying with some cousins who lived in woods with lots of windows. It was not a great, it was not a great setup for my over uh, imagination, but I just went through this season of constant fear. Um, I remember feeling pretty obnoxious because I dragged TJ around with me wherever I went or I would try to be with my family or just someone else in the room. Um, but even in that, the fear never fully dissipated. And so what I started to discover was a prayer life. And I started to discover the peace from God that only God can provide. Um, so that season went on for about a year. I've actually coined that season of my life like a year of terror is what I call it. Like constant fear, but also constant prayer. And it developed me, and that's when my faith became my own. That's when I decided that I needed to build my own faith outside of the faith that my parents had. Um, so yeah, we moved back to Jamaica, and one day I remember just looking around and being like, wait a second, I don't think I'm afraid anymore. Interesting. So I was just like, okay, wait, I think God's healed me. This is incredible. And sure enough, like I have not faced fear like that since that day. Um, like my mom said, it was a lot of isolation. It was a lot of, stayed in Jamaica, like my mom said, it was a lot of isolation. It was a lot of loneliness, a lot of days of being mad at TJ and being like, well, can't be mad anymore. You're my only friend, so let's go. Um, uh, so we couldn't hold grudges. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we moved back to the States. Uh, I remember my first day at public school being like, am I going to know what we're talking about? Yes. Wineland, you freaked me out on my first day talking about unit circle. I'm not even kidding. Um, <laughs> it was a great day. It turned out fine. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so, um, and then some other things that I feel like God was really setting me up for was there was a sermon and Tamor talked about, he brought up the song, Though You Slay Me by Shane and Shane. And 
had never really gone through anything super traumatic, but I remember that song being like, wow, this is really cool. And it really is, God, you can take it all, like whatever happens, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. And so that's the song that I'd been obsessed with for the month of April. And then two weeks, or the middle of April, prom comes along. Classic high schooler, lots of prom drama. I just remember there was miscommunication all around and I remember feeling really lonely and feeling left by my friends just with the plans that had been made. So I was at home crying to my mom like, I don't have anybody to go with me. Like this whole thing, I look back now, not a huge deal, but at the time it was a really big deal. Um, but the next day I wake up from a text from my dad that he had sent at four in the morning on his way to the airport saying, hey, anyway, be an overcomer again. Wish I could be there to take your pain away. Be an overcomer again. And he was like, you've been through hard things. You can do this too. Um, so that was pretty much the last interaction that I had with my dad. I was there when Todd came over. I heard mom start to cry, run in, being like, what's going on? And my first reaction that night was to run outside and to pray. I was like, all right, God. You've done it for me before. You're going to have to do it for me again. I was like, I don't have an earthly father anymore, but you've got to show up and you have to prove yourself to me every day that you're here. And man, did he show up <laughs> every day for that summer of 2016. I just felt a peace that couldn't understand. I felt a joy that nobody understood. I had lots of questions about it. And I was like, this can only make sense because of Christ. I was like... My circumstances do not communicate this amount of joy, but I was like, but I have a joy that's sustaining me. Um, and then that led into senior year, that joy remained, but the questions also remained of God, why? God, why missions? Is missions worth it? Is missions good? Is your glory worth it? Um, because at that time, I had been thinking of moving overseas after college. Like that had been the plan that I was moving towards. But those questions made me question all of that. Um, so I started taking perspectives. And through that class, God like drilled in every day. I have a heart for the people that don't know me. There are people out there who don't know me. So I was still good in this. So I was like, okay, God. You're right, missions has taken a lot, but you've given so much more. And so I will continue to trust in you. So that hasn't always been easy. Like TJ said, we've just been talking about Psalms of Lament because last week I had to re-lament the whole thing again. I had to re-ask those questions of God, are you good? And I had to follow them up with, Here, here's my pain, yet you, O oh Lord, are still good. So... That's where I'm at now of pursuing eventually overseas missions, um, currently at Cornerstone Church in Ames, serving with opportunity student ministry because it's such a sweet opportunity to love people who don't get the chance to hear Jesus' name at home. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's hard to follow. <laughs> so, um, 
we didn't even talk about this ahead of time, really, but I'm going to basically say a lot of the same things because lamenting, knowing that God is good, is what gets you through. So what I have learned through tragedy and grief, I learned that I was thankful for a foundation of faith. There are so many ways my faith carried me through, um, and knowing that God was with me was just a bedrock. Some people figure out their faith in the midst of a tragedy of a gerbil. I, I had the attention span of a gerbil. I couldn't read my Bible. I don't know how you figure out big things in the midst of grief, so I was glad I already knew some foundational truths. I am glad I already knew uh, that God is good and that God is faithful and that God is sovereign and that he wins in the end and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And just like TJ said, not for me personally, although I suppose, you know, Big picture, what he thinks is good is not what I think is good. Um, but that picture view, all together, he's got this big picture view, and he knew this was good. I couldn't see that it was good, but I just had to trust him that somehow it was good. Uh, I had to trust him because where else would I go? So there were several verses that I relied on. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I always thought that was like being afraid of death until you experience a death of a loved one. That is the shadow of the valley of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. And therefore we will not fear. But the main one that I relied on was this, Psalm 27, 13. I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Thankful that I had an understanding that we shouldn't be I am also thankful that I had an understanding that we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. The Bible assures us that we will have trouble. And it shouldn't be surprising. I've had several people express indignation on my behalf that this happened to us after all we had done. And I'm glad I knew it didn't work that way. You can't earn your way out of suffering. It didn't work for Paul, and it didn't work for Jesus. I don't think we should expect it to work for us. So my meager offerings of work are offered to God and are a pleasing aroma to him, but they don't guarantee me safety, so I guarantee me a carefree path through life. So I'm thankful I knew that ahead of time, and I'm faithful. I'm thankful that I knew that God is faithful. So even still, given that, I wasn't angry, but I did learn a lot about lamenting. And lamenting is knowing that God is sovereign and telling him that you don't like his plan. God, this is a stupid plan. I'm pretty sure you could have figured out a different way to do this. Um, it's not accusing God of wrongdoing. It's just an honest confession of confusion and, and sorrow. And so two-thirds of the Psalms are laments 
So this isn't anything new that God is dealing with. He is big enough to handle all our lamenting and not, not be offended by it. He is there to grieve with us. And it's safe because you have a relationship with thing, anything. Because you have a relationship with him, it's safe. Dr. Russell Moore in his book, Adopted for Life, tells about his visit to a Russian nursery. And he said the silence was eerie because the babies didn't cry. Not because they didn't have needs, but because they knew nobody would come. They didn't know, nobody cared. And so because we have a relationship with God, we can trust him to cry to him and know that he is there to help us. And so I often envision myself crawling up into his lap and just crying. And my circumstances didn't change, but my heart was comforted. Wants to hear from us. Really amazing that the creator of the universe wants to hear from us and is available to help us and wants the best. It's so amazing that no other religion can even conceive of such an idea. It's amazing that we have a God who comforts us even as we tell him his plan stinks. Because God is faithful. I also learned that I am very thankful for the hope of salvation. Those of us in the church can take it for granted. Um, we forget how amazing it is that God has given us a way out of our deserved punishment and that this way out involved him coming and entering human history, dying for us and paying for our debt of sin. And it's just through his grace that we get this. And this was so important to me so that I didn't have to grieve as those who have no hope. Um, I know that Randy's not missing anything here. He's not missing it. He isn't, he's not missing anything. I've been jealous that he got to go and I have to stay and trudge through this messy life. Um, and my fellow grief sufferers, I've, of, of who I have several here, thanks for coming, guys. Um, everybody says that this bedrock of hope has helped them get through it. Which makes me grieve for the four billion who can, people in the world who will be born and die and never meet a Christian or hear the gospel message. Is that I learned from this um, journey is that I needed to adjust my identity. One of the side effects of Randy's death was a crisis of identity, similar to what TJ said. I was surprised. I didn't know he had gone through the same thing. Um, I didn't realize how much of my identity I received from being Randy's wife. And um, Randy was awesome. I'm not sure it was a bad thing to get my identity from that until it suddenly ended. And then I was like, who am I? Am I enough, just me? Um, Randy was that guy. He was always ready to help, always ready to have a good time, ready with advice, ready with fun. He had an engineer's mind. He, could, he was good at everything. And a lot of people asked him for advice. And so I didn't really need to be awesome. Randy was enough for both of us. <laughs> because Randy was enough for both of us. 
I mean, it's a package deal. Randy carried 95% of the, you know, awesomeness. And so <laughs> I could just be nothing. And so after, after my 90, 95% of awesomeness was gone, what, who am I? Am I enough as just me? And so, of course, Satan was right there to say, no, you're not as competent. I don't know why you're left. Why would God leave you here? And so I was really adrift for a while, as TJ was. Um, and I had to listen to what God says makes me. I'm his child and who God says I am. And God says I'm his child. I am chosen, adopted, loved, made complete in him. And my favorite is God says I am his treasured possession. In Deuteronomy, God tells Israel they are his chosen people, a royal priesthood, treasured possession. And then Peter applies that to us as believers. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, his treasured possession. And that term treasured possession relates to jewels. We are the jewels in God's treasure chest. And so God can hold me up and say, have you seen my daughter Sarah? Isn't she beautiful when my love is reflected from her? She is my treasure. And so you all might not think I'm enough, because 95% of the awesomeness is gone. But God and his love is given. I am deeply loved. And his love is given and never earned. And I have received it. Maybe some of you can relate for me, it was being widowed. I didn't know who I was anymore. But maybe for some of you, it's something else, a divorce or a rejection or an assault or something. But that's not your identity. And if Satan tells you it is, you just call him out as the father of lies and say, my God says that I am enough. The Bible says that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance builds character and character produces hope. And I can tell you we don't ever want the suffering. Older, five years ago, and I am stronger and bolder. Five years ago, this would not have happened, right? <laughs> Those of you who knew me then, uh, Heather was just saying, remember when you used to have to come up here and you'd hide behind Randy and Pastor Todd would say, you, want, you have anything to add, Sarah? And <laughs> I'm not talking. But I like who I am now more than who I was then. And last, God gives purpose and power. So in addition to wondering who am I, I had to answer what do I do now? I didn't really have a position in Jamaica. I couldn't do that without Randy. Um, and so when a former coworker of mine had found out we were gonna be in the States for a year, he had contacted me and offered me a one-year contract in software development. Um, can we just pause and out of the software a little bit there? Because I had been out of the software industry for eight years, which is like three lifetimes in the software development industry. And I just waltzed right into a high-paying job. So anyway, by the time Randy died several months later, I was several months into this contract already. And so they immediately offered to extend the contract. 
And so I had a high-paying job already uh, when Randy died. And so that was amazing. And I just relied on Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to walk humbly with your God. Do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So for that first year, it was all I could do to walk with God. And he carried me through it. Um, and the common wisdom is to make no decisions for a year, and I would highly recommend that. Um, that's good advice. No decisions for the first year. And, but at about the one-year mark, I began to feel some dissatisfaction in my job, um, some uncomfortable callings, some reminders that I had surrendered my life to whatever God wanted. And so... Um, Walking with God sounds easy, but sometimes it's not. It involves surrender and surrendering your comfort and your self-sufficiency and your control. And so it was scary. God was asking me to trust him with my future again. And it was scary to quit my bind. Randy would figure it out. But I knew then that if we got in a bind, Randy would figure it out. And I had to repent of that. And I had to step out with just God, just the creator of the universe, just all-powerful, you know, but it was just God, and that shouldn't be scary, but it was. And so he was asking me to go back to missions. There were a couple obstacles, though. I didn't want to uproot the kids again so soon. I didn't know if you could do software development in missions, and I didn't want to do this kind of thing. <laughs> I could not raise the support on my own. And so Randy had done all that the first time and went away with Wycliffe Bible Translators. So the first two obstacles went away with Wycliffe Bible Translators. They were advertising for software developers to help build tools for Bible translators. And they agreed that I could work remotely from Iowa. But that third obstacle, I frantically reminded God that I couldn't talk in front of people not just like this, like even in a setting of four people, I'm, I wouldn't talk. Um, so I frantically reminded him of that, and it didn't work for Moses, and it didn't work for me. <laughs> he didn't give me Aaron, though. I had to do it myself. And so he also gave me 2 Corinthians 12.10, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Okay, thanks, God. So, God and many of you have walked with me through my first tentative, uncomfortable, and attempts to speak, and up to my current less uncomfortable, still sometimes awkward, um, attempts to speak. And here's a surprise. I was able to raise the support with God's power behind me. Yes. Amen. So there are many areas that I am not competent in, and that's okay, because God gets all the wins then. And so I just encourage you to step out and test God and watch him show up. So I don't know why God's plan included Randy's early death. I know that um, 
I know that um, we trained the national alumni to take over the school that we started, and they didn't think they were ready. They were worried. I mean, we, we turned it over to them before we came back for this one-year home assignment, and they said, Pastor Randy, we're not ready. We're going to ruin it. Um, don't, don't turn it over to us. And he said, no, you're ready. Um, they didn't think they were, but God did. And this past January, I attended the graduation ceremony of the first class that started entirely after Randy died. And so that was um, a big win. There are hundreds of Bible translation teams that have software tools coming their way to help them with their work and what impact that will have on those languages that don't have the Bible. The older three are, have also grappled with their faith. They had to give up their parents. Amy and Cassie were never on the mission field, but they had to give up their parents um, and, uh, for their college and young adult years. They were looking forward to having their dad around to help with things big and small, and then that help was taken away again. And Callie uh, grew up angry, angry at God and angry at Randy, frankly, for ruining her life. She hated being a missionary kid, hated everything about it. Um, and so when Randy died, she was still living this, I got to make up for all this lost time, not a God-honoring life, ready, mad at you, and Mandy died, I said, God, she's already mad at you, and now look what you've done. We're never going to get her back now. She's not coming back. But God. Randy's death brought Callie to her knees, and she knew she had to figure out if God was worth it, or if her dad had died, had given his life for nothing. And within six months of Randy's death, Callie was back, and God was waiting for her with open arms. In an ironic twist of fate, God, or God's sense of humor, I'm not sure, Callie is herself a missionary, and uh, her fiancé proposed to her in Iraq, and after they're married this winter, they will uh, head over to the Middle East in the spring Callie is all in, just like her dad was. And she, a surrendered, that a normal life is not the goal. A surrendered life is the goal. So I hope our stories have given you hope that even through tragedy, God can speak.